This is the Dungeon Master's Handbook. Hello, everyone. I'm Michael Shorten, also known as Chicago Is. Welcome. This is episode 37, Reading Unearthed Arcana, Classes and the Cavalier. And this episode is going to continue the series where I'll be taking a look at the book Unearthed Arcana, which is a set of optional rules published in 1985 by TSR for AD&D First Edition. And I'm going to be looking at it from the standpoint of would I use the material from this book in my campaign? And I'm going to share my thoughts on what I learn as I read through UA. But before I begin, though, I want to kind of catch you up on some of my many games that I'm running since this podcast is about uh, my campaign. So currently, I have three main campaign games in my Etonero world running right now. First is my 11-year-old tabletop game, Now Gone Virtual, onto Roll20 and Zoom. The players are seeking to escape the depths of a deep dungeon known as Tulloch with a legendary weapon that they've recovered that's going to help them against the Dark Ones. Now, the Dark Ones are Chaos Lords who are returning to conquer my campaign world, and PCs don't want that to happen. The PCs are currently in the midst of trying to help a newly discovered colony of myconid creatures called the Ilum, who the players have described as, hey, they're the friendly Borg because they think with a hive mind. They don't see themselves as individual. They see themselves as of a collective, if you will. Uh, what's interesting is that the PCs are facing some moral quandaries right now because they're trying to help the Ilum learn how to negotiate to be able to expand their own colony. Uh, the idea is that the more that this Myconid colony grows, then the larger it is, and therefore the more intelligent the hive mind of the Ilum becomes. So naturally, they want to grow. Well, the PCs, however, are the first intelligent species that the Ilum have ever come across. They've lived underground this entire time, and so um, the PCs have been an interesting teacher of some lessons based on the actions that the PCs take. And it's interesting that the PCs see their actions reflected and mirrored by something else, and they go, oh, well... That's really not the moral lesson we wanted to teach you all. I love it. It's been fascinating to run this, and I, and I love seeing where the role-playing has really gone in this. It's been a, a lot of fun. So my second Etonera game is my every other Tuesday game that I run on Roll20 and on Zoom. That's been really exciting. Uh, the players have been raiding a ruins of a castle called Griffin's Keep that was overrun by orcs and goblins and black mages and turned into a stronghold of theirs. Well, they faced those humanoids, defeated them, and then when they returned, they faced them again as raised zombies because there was a necromancer also at that castle. Well, they've managed to defeat everyone there, and they've chased the main villain out of the keep. They were trying to capture him, but unfortunately the villain had ye old potion of gaseous form, which the villain drank, of course, to, to get away. But he was outside, and if you've ever really read the rules on the potion of gaseous form, the imbiber, 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 only moves at a rate of three inches per round, which is really slow. <laughs> 
So we had a very slow moving pursuit. I used the AD&D outdoor evasion technique, which I covered in an earlier episode, episode 34. And for whatever reason, the villain could not roll below a high number to be able to evade pursuit. He needed to roll a 75, rolled like a 78 and a 79 for the two hours that the, um, that the potion of gaseous form was still in effect. So after that, after half the party chased him through the woods, he became whole again. He and this group, uh, fought. He had an armor class of two and a magical weapon, and so the PCs decided to fall back. But now the PCs have discovered that they're lost. And that little splinter group, because they split the party, that little splinter group has also split. So now I have three separate groups of PCs that I'm currently running, and two of them are lost. It's uh, going to be very interesting to see what happens next game. So my third Etnera game, my play-by-post uh, game, which is taking place way far away in another corner of my campaign world, the PCs have been exploring a lost ruined city of Ramathia, and they just had an interesting encounter with my version of the water weird that had come to inhabit a abandoned fountain. Well, they couldn't hit the water weird with normal, well, they could hit the water weird with normal weapons and with magic missiles. It just wasn't killing the thing. It was making it dissipate. It would go away. And then two rounds later, it would reform. Well, they decided, okay, we're just not going to mess with this. <laughs> now they're avoiding it. Uh, they have opted to explore a sewer system because they're trying to enter the city's keep in order to get some long sought for information from that that may be in that keeps library. Now, they're guided by an inhabitant of the city who I play as a cross between crazy Don Knotts from 1960s and 70s television and my interpretation of Gurney Halleck from the Dune novel. This poor guy, name of Herm, has been alone for decades, left behind in the city of Ramathia. So he's a little loopy from being by himself. But he has these moments of clarity where he remembers he was a high-ranking official in the city guard. So it's been fun to do that. I'm also running two mini campaigns. One is a dungeon delve. I've taken the classic module B1 in Search of the Unknown in the dungeon of Quasquetan and made it my own. And uh, the other game that I'm running, the other mini campaign, is a convention dungeon delve that I wrote called Delve the Deeps, also set in my Etnera campaign world. Now, I originally ran these both as one-shot events, but the players ended up enjoying themselves so much that they asked if we could continue to play. And I was like, sure. So we're going to keep playing every other week until the players finish. So we'll be doing that on Saturday. I've got a couple other games I'm running and playing, and... I wish I had good news about my two family games, uh, the one one-on-one -on -one game with my wife and the other one that's a fifth edition game with my grandkids and my kids. And it's kind of funny, you know, we're all living here in close quarters, you know, under the COVID uh, shelter in place rules. But when it's time to play D&D, &D, none of us can seem to ever get it together to actually sit down and play. I, I wonder if you have that same experience. Um, but, uh, so hopefully I'll be able to get them to the table again soon. All right. So enough about that. Let's get on to the main topic of this episode, Unearthed Arcana.
In the last episode, I covered some of the history of Unearthed Arcana, and I talked about the first couple of sections on the new attribute comeliness and on the new sub-races that uh, UA put out. And I got some great feedback. Thank you very much. A couple of people wrote in and, and commented, and I got some good feedback that I may have come across as very negative towards Unearthed Arcana. Now, it's true. I have heard a lot of negative things about Unearthed Arcana over the years. I especially heard that using Unearthed Arcana and the options therein would become campaign records, that they're so overpowered and they're not very well thought of and, and so on. And that being said, I have gone ahead to look at this book as kind of some inspiration. You know, are there things here that I could use in my campaign? Is there anything that makes sense to add as is? Or is there something there that, you know, maybe sparks another idea or a tweak or just something that I may want to try out? Unfortunately, right off the bat, the first two sections, comeliness and the sub-races, really didn't fit anything that I found useful or would want, and I gave my honest opinion of how I feel about them. And I'm sorry if I came across as too negative. Um, you know, like anything else in this podcast, this is my opinion and should probably be taken with a big shaker or two of salt. You know, if nothing else, I hope that maybe while I'm going through Unearthed Arcana, you hear something that sparks your interest and you'll decide to pick up the book yourself. Obviously, I'm going to be very honest when I find something that I really like, and I'm going to be just as honest as when I find something that I don't like. But I will try to, you know, really, truly make an effort to, to try to find both. Unfortunately, I still can't come up with a good use for comeliness. So, oh, well. So that being said, let's take a look at what's next in Unearthed Arcana, and that would be new character classes. And right off the bat, we have a doozy of the class, the Cavalier. Now, the Cavalier takes up about two and a half pages from page 14 to page 16, and it covers four main topics. The qualifications and setup of how a PC can become a Cavalier. It covers the weapons and combat related information that are specific to the Cavalier class, and there is a lot of them. It also covers other benefits and restrictions to the Cavalier, of which there are a lot of those as well. And interestingly, it also covers a lot of role-playing factors that you might need to take into consideration if you're going to play or GM the Cavalier. My take of this is at the heart of the Cavalier, it's a take on the mythological and romantic view of a knight from the Middle Ages. Think Knights of Camelot, think of, you know, the, the Arthur uh, cycle, think of the romantic stories of the knights riding around the countryside, you know, or the, the knights going off to serve their orders in the uh, Crusades and whatnot. And that really is the Cavalier. It's a person with a code of conduct who has a focus on the arts of war and weaponry and is serving some sort of a cause, whether it's a god or a noble or what have you. That is a cavalier. And this is also a class that I feel is very much rooted in the underlying setting of Dungeons and Dragons in the early 80s. Which I found kind of surprising because when you first take in Unearthed Arcana, it's meant to be 
non-campaign setting specific, but there's a lot in the Cavalier that feels like it's very Greyhawk, that feels like it's very Mistara, surprisingly. And, you know, you'll recognize the Cavalier. In fact, I have a book here, the Penn Haligan trilogy written by dj heinrich uh, this book is called the tainted sword and this is a dungeons and dragons branded novel this was those published in the early 90s you definitely recognize the cavalier and the class and all of the ways and the restrictions and and how it handles itself written into this novel. So I find it very interesting that, you know, the the way that the codes of honor and conduct are laid out, um, the way the Cavalier must operate in UA very much feels like it was taken whole cloth from a setting and put into Unearthed Arcana. But I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, and I'm going to tell you why. I think that as UA, Unearthed Arcana, lays this out, the Cavalier is a great example of how somebody could take the the key core classes from first edition AD&D and tune them to your setting. I mean, this class focuses on weapon mastery as pertains to this special kind of order. It focuses on the high social status that a cavalier must have. It focuses on their code of conduct and how that plays into the character and how their actions are limited and how they progress throughout the levels. It's really interesting variant on a fighter. And it very much gives you the groundwork of how you could take the fighter class and tune it to now be a knight. So I, I, I think, you know, on that alone, it's very interesting to go through and read this. So let's get into the rules a bit. So how does a PC become a Cavalier? Well, according to the, the rules as written, you have to have attribute scores of 15 or better in strength, dexterity, and constitution, and you have to have a 10 in both intelligence and wisdom. So you have to have some pretty good roles there. And interestingly, there's no need for charisma score, which I thought was kind of interesting considering, you know, a knight is supposed to, you know, have be presence and you know, they, they were talking about earlier uh, when we were talking about comeliness and charisma, how charisma was a factor of leadership and leading men, but it doesn't factor into the Cavalier. Now, when we talk n- next episode about paladins and how paladins have become a subclass of the Cavalier, then we'll talk a little bit about how charisma plays there. Another way that a PC uh, can become a Cavalier is that they have to come from a quote-unquote proper social class and be in service to something like a god, an order, a cause, or maybe a specific noble person. Uh, It's not really something that I'm personally very familiar with, but the original AD&E core rules and the Dungeon Master Guide do talk about social standing and social classes. And so it's assuming here in the Cavalier write-up that you'll be familiar with what that is. What is really interestingly in this is that if the PC isn't of a higher social standing, they can actually earn their way into being a cavalier by acting as one without the benefits. You're starting as a level zero cavalier. In order to do that, you have to 
amass a total of 1,500 experience points while acting as a cavalier. So obeying the, the code of conduct and the dress and, and the armor and, and what have you. You start off with 1d4 plus 1 hit points. You earn a thousand experience points, then you move up to 2d4 plus one hit points. And then after you've earned 1500 experience points, you become a first level cavalier and you get 1d10 plus three hit points. This actually is something that I see in other optional books where the idea that you earn your way into becoming a uh, first level character. I thought it was interesting that, that UA took that up. That, that's kind of a neat idea there. There is unfortunately already a typo that I found in the very chart that I'm looking at. The level chart says it's a 12-sided die for accumulating hit points, but when you read the text and you even look at some of the notes on the table itself, it says that it's a, a D10 hit points. And, and I tend to believe that it's a D10 versus a D12. So the next bit about a Cavalier. Now, there are many benefits, mainly in using weapons and in the horsemanship of a Cavalier. Uh, things like to hit bonuses with specific weapons. So at first level, the Cavalier is plus one to hit with the Lance. At third level, the Cavalier gets to hit with a plus one with a, either a broadsword, longsword, or scimitar, player's choice. And this kind of repeats itself for uh, fifth level. You can be plus one with uh, a mace, a flail, or a military pick, horseman's mace, horseman's flail, and horseman's military pick. And then at seventh level, you are plus two to hit with the lance if used while mounted, and so on. And, and it continues here with plus two and plus three. You also get multiple attacks with those same preferred weapons. And we'll talk about that a little later. There's some other benefits you get. You get uh, parrying when by using both your strength and your damage bonus when using these preferred weapons. You can use your shield to parry a second opponent. And then there's quite a number of bonuses that you get while you're on horseback. Um, you can vault into the saddle with bulky armor and have the steed underway in a single segment. I guess as, as opposed to having to get the step stool out and lumber onto the horse and go away at, at first level. At third level, you can jump on and, and ride away like a cowboy. Uh, and there's some other things here. Another neat bit when we are talking about the benefits and then some of the restrictions is that training, you have to associate your training with whom you are serving. So you need to be trained by another cavalier that is, say, in the same order or the same group as yourself. Uh, there's a bit about being able to increase your attributes. Yes, the Cavalier broke the, the rule on increasing attributes just by leveling up. It uses this little mechanic where you use the D100 to set where some attributes start, such as strength or dexterity uh, or constitution. And then as you gain levels, you can roll to see how many of these hundreds of a point you gain. And then once you go over the uh, 100 level, then your attribute goes up. Uh, it's an interesting mechanic, um, although we'll talk about that a little later. Then we get to saving throws. And Cavalier have, uh, 
have some interesting things here. They make all their saving throws as fighters, but they have some immunities similar to elves, uh, like, say, against fear and against charm and sleep and what have you. Uh, they also radiate... Cavaliers of good alignment radiate a protect protection from fear aura in a one-inch radius, much like a paladin has the protection from evil at a one-inch radius. Um, and some other things like that. Cavaliers of good alignment are able to function at negative hit point totals, unlike members of other classes or cavaliers of neutral or evil alignment. And I'll get back into that a little bit later. Uh, as a member of a social upper classes, the cavalier has a coat of arms and armorial bearing, and that's how they announce themselves and so on. Uh, finally, cavaliers may expect full hospitality, food, lodging, and whatever else is needed within reason from all other cavaliers of the same alignment. And then it goes on into some role-playing, role-playing the code of honor and their code of conduct and how they should conduct themselves on and off the field of battle. And what I find interesting about the, this whole latter section here is how they were really making a distinction between a bad-aligned or an evil-aligned cavalier as versus a good-aligned cavalier. It kind of feels like that same sort of restriction that AD&D put onto the paladin, which says a paladin must be lawful good. And that's really it to the cavalier. So then that leads the uh, question, would I use this in my campaign? Well, I find it very intriguing from a setting-specific sort of class, you know, a setting-tuned class where you've really gone in and maybe identified, a, you know, some sort of a fighting order or a particular mercenary company or what have you. I find it really interesting from that way, but there's a couple of things just using it as written that give me pause. First... The combination of the to hit bonuses and the multiple attacks make the Cavalier very dangerous as a combat machine. But then on the flip side, the Cavalier class is saddled with an almost suicidal restriction of having to, and I quote, they will charge any enemy in sight with the following order of preference. Number one, powerful monsters, dragons, demons, giants, etc., serving enemy leaders than the leaders themselves. Number two, opponent cavaliers of great renown, enemy flags, and standards. Number three, opponent cavalry of noble elite. And, and, and it kind of lays this all down. And, and I think the idea here was... Oh, the cavalier's charge will be made at full speed regardless of army cohesion, intervening troops, and other such considerations. So in other words, you have a rich, snobby barbarian. Yeah. That's a little suicidal, because I as a GM, ah, I'm not liking this cavalier too much, so I'm going to throw down, you know, five giants. Have fun with that guy. Yeah, so on one hand, you have these really interesting to hit at, at second level, so... Let me just run through this and, and, and bear with me here. The rule is written is the Cavalier may make multiple attacks with a, quote, weapon of choice as if the character were five levels higher than actual as far as attacks per round are concerned. From the player's handbook is under the fighter, paladin, and ranger's attacks per melee round. 
the fighter level one through six gets one attack per round. Then from seven to 12, they get three attacks every two round. And from uh, 13 on up, they get two attacks every round. What's interesting is the Cavalier does this at five levels higher than actual. So if you are a second level Cavalier, you can attack three times every two rounds. Couple that with that third level, you can hit not only with a plus one to you with your lance and a plus one with either a broadsword, longsword, or scimitar, player's choice. And probably if you rolled that 15 as a strength, you probably rolled maybe something a little bit higher. So you may already have a plus one for damage and what have you. You're really going to be able to do some walloping damage. So I think as written, that kind of gives me a little bit of a pause. The second thing that gave me a pause when I first read this is that there are no XP bonuses to meeting those attribute requirements because there is no prime requisite for a Cavalier. I found that kind of odd. I mean, if you look at the Paladin, the Paladin's prime requisite is strength, and they do get their bonus. But the Cavalier does not. I'm not really sure where that came from, but there it is. The other thing about the rules as written is that there is an emphasis, almost a push, if you will, that a cavalier has to be of good alignment. It makes sense if you consider that this was lifted from maybe Greyhawk or Mistara whole cloth and then put into our North Arcana, but I think I would definitely tweak that a bit. So how would I use the cavalier? Well, to start with, I probably wouldn't have the same social qualifications because in my mind, I'm not seeing a cavalier as a specific class. What I'm actually doing is I'm taking the fighter class and I'm taking maybe mercenary companies, fighters guilds, fighting orders, if you will, martial arts kind of groups, maybe certain nobles. And I'm tuning the fighter class to their abilities and their specific outlook, much like I did with the Paladin. Uh, if you uh, go back to um, a previous episode, I think it was 14 or 15, where I talked about how I tweaked the Paladin for my setting, a Paladin is actually a champion of a deity. And their restrictions and their benefits and bonuses and powers and what have you are tuned to that specific deity and the deity's powers and what kinds of things that they do. So I think that in this case, the Cavalier would become almost like a platform for me to tune a fighter to. I probably would not combine the hit bonuses and the multiple attacks. I just at second level and third level, I think that maybe is, is a little bit too much. I, I might end up tweaking that a little bit. I did, however, uh, like that in the text, it lays out about using a lance as a foot weapon. Never occurred to me. And, uh, they lay out that a light or a medium lance can be used dismounted as a spear and a heavy lance can be used as an all pike. 
Well, that's pretty cool. I think I'm going to end up using that right away. I like that idea. Uh, I think the saving throw bonuses are a bit much. Um, not, well, let me take that back. Not the saving throw bonuses. I think it's the immunities. Uh, Cavaliers are 90% immune to magical or magic-like phenomena, including beguiling, charm, domination, hold, hypnosis, magic jar, possession, sleep suggestion, and mind blast, which is kind of interesting considering they only need a 10 in intelligence and wisdom. I'm not sure I follow that. Um, and I'm not sure I agree with that. The protection from fear I could see, but maybe at a higher level, not necessarily level one. I think, you know, somebody who is getting on, say, past fourth level, you know, hero level, old OD&D terms, I, I could see that. So I definitely like the idea of the restrictions on a specific guild or a specific order, you know, saying you have to do certain things this way and certain things that way. I really do like that. It's almost like a, a way of being able to earn all of these extra benefits. I would probably strip out the restrictions that are levied against evil and neutral cavaliers. Uh, like the idea that evil or neutral cavaliers can't function at negative hit points whereas a good cavalier can to me uh no i i would i would you know kind of sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander kind of thing so uh and there's nothing like the pcs thinking that they have conquered something and it gets back up to fight again i do love that in conclusion or in retrospect i think that the cavalier is not quite as bad as i had feared and there is definitely some tweaking and tuning bits here now, I know this is not what Gary Gygax was advocating when he wrote the intro to Unearthed Arcana. If you remember, we talked about that uh, last episode where corporate Gary was all about, you know, thou shalt play AD&D as I say so. But I got to tell you, I prefer Gamer Gary, who wrote the intro to to original Dungeons & Dragons and said, you know, make this your own. And I definitely could see making the Cavalier or the idea of a tunable setting-specific fighter um, something that I would add into my campaign. And I have to admit, too, that having read the Cavalier from kind of that point of view, it makes me understand why custom classes are so interesting to other folks. They haven't been to me in the past, you know, when you see all of the classes that came in all of the splat books in second edition and all of the options in third edition, fourth edition and fifth edition. To me, it feels a little overwhelming, but kind of thinking about, you know, using the the Cavalier as a source of inspiration, much how I've used uh, tuned paladins to deities. And I actually have included a custom class as an NPC class in my campaign. I use a old necromancer class that was found in some ancient issue of White Dwarf somewhere. In fact, I just learned it was from White Dwarf a couple of weeks ago from one of my campaign players. You know, I kind of realized that maybe I ought to start looking at these custom classes in a different light as more as, oh, you know, if I have a player right now who's uh, playing a monk and this monk is part of an order of the walkers of the night. I think that's what he called them. But the idea is, you know, they, they take long journeys. They like the nighttime. This is how their order was started. And he's wanting to tune his monk to that specific 
now I start to see why custom classes are so interesting and how I might start looking at them uh, for future tweaks in my campaign. You know, might be something interesting for my players to invest in. So what do you think? Does the Cavalier sound like a class that you'd like to bring into your campaign? How would you tweak it? I'd be curious to know. Let me know what you think. I have some ways to contact me in the show notes. I've really appreciated the feedback I got from the first Unearthed Arcana episode, so please keep it coming. Let me know what you think. Uh, email, voicemail, anchor message, it's all good, and I'll be sure to include it in a future episode. In speaking of future episodes, our next episode, we're going to talk about the Paladin, Barbarian, and some of the other classes that are found in Unearthed Arcana, and we'll see how I'm going to include those in my campaign, if I do. All right, that's it. Until next time, game on.